This is Ready to Real Estate, a TREB podcast. Each month, we interview experts in the field, discuss the data, and explore all facets of the housing market. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer or a seasoned real estate professional, you will benefit from our insightful conversations and gain property intelligence as we discover more about the key issues shaping our industry. Now here's our host, Jason Mercer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ready to Real Estate. I'm your host, Jason Mercer, TREB's Chief Market Analyst. Inflation, interest rates, and population are on the rise, and we need strong leaders willing to take bold action for the future of our industry and Toronto. At the beginning of October, TREB held a sold-out fireside chat with Mayor John Tory to discuss key issues that matter to realtors and consumers. TREB President Kevin Krieger and TREB CEO John D. Michelle joined Mayor Tory to talk about his stance on housing, transportation, and taxes. Listen in for the key takeaways you should know before you cast your vote in the municipal election on Monday, October 24th. So John, on October 24th, we'll head to the polls and elect a new city council for the next four years. If re-elected by the end of this term, you will become Toronto's longest serving mayor exceeding the 11 years that Art Eggleton served in office. Why have you decided to run again? Well, I should tell you, first of all, it was a, um, a difficult negotiation at home because I had sort of, you know, given the hint and, and we had a chat before I ran the first time that I would likely serve eight years. But I, I sort of answered the question just a moment ago and I won't repeat myself to save more time. I, I just believed at this stage of the game, given that the pandemic did represent a huge um, interruption to um, the kind of time that we could allocate to progress on things like transit and housing. Uh, given the fact that the partnerships that were established um, on transit and on housing and during the pandemic were partnerships we needed to continue. And if you change partners, there's a chance that those partnerships won't stick together to the same way. I felt that now more than ever with the strain on the city's finances and with the uncertainty we face and including even in the real estate market to some extent, it was better to have stable, uh, continuous leadership than it was to have a change. And I'm not saying a change uh, you know, down the road will not be a good thing because change is always good, but I just felt that right now at this point, um, the uncertainty of the times required steady uh, leadership and that I should offer a continuation of those partnerships, getting the job done to actually get the transit built and making sure that plan didn't get messed around with, um, making further progress on housing, knowing that we have to make the kinds of changes I described when I was speaking a moment ago, and that that was really uh, something that I could uh, best do. And if you don't believe that, you know, you sound immodest sometimes when you talk about yourself this way, well, if I don't do that, who's going to do it for me? And I have to make what I hope to be an objective assessment for myself, but more importantly for the people. I think most people know that I don't have to do this at my age or at my stage in life. I genuinely, I love my job and I love working for you. And I go to work, I'm at my desk at six o'clock every morning, um, trying to work for you. And I'm not perfect and I, I make mistakes, but I'm trying to do the right thing. And I'm trying to make sure this city moves forward because I love the city. I think it's a beacon to the rest of the world uh, for a whole bunch of reasons in terms of opportunity and so on, but mostly because of those values that I talked about at the very end of my remarks. So that's why I'm running again. So as you could see today, we have an engaged group here, and they would have held you here all day to take selfies, but that's another story. Um, as you continue your bid on a third term, um, and, and being the leader you are, and wanting to lead the city, what are you hearing from your constituents uh, on the campaign trail? Are they concerned? 
Are they engaged? Do you feel you're going to get a, uh, a good voter turnout? What do you think? What, what are you seeing? I think people, I think people are concerned uh, about a number of things. I think they're very concerned about affordability. You know, you can't, you, we all know this. I mean, uh, some are more fortunate than others, but uh, myself included. But you can't make the kinds of changes to the uh, degree to which people can afford to live their lives that has happened relatively quickly especially in the aftermath of a very nerve-wracking period like the pandemic and not have people very concerned about that. I think in the aftermath of the pandemic anyway, people were very concerned about what was the impact on their kids? What was the impact on their grandchildren? What was the impact on them? What is the future of work in the city? How's the economy going to recover from what was a body blow that it took during the course of the pandemic? So people had enough things to worry about and then all of a sudden it seems in the aftermath of the pandemic, in part because of international events and so on, you had gas prices escalating dramatically, you had food prices escalating dramatically, you had interest rates going up which dramatically affected the work that all of you do, um, and you had rents increasing. And so I think this has created a great deal of uncertainty which I completely understand. And it's why I think that we have to have steady, determined leadership to say that we can't necessarily, as a city government or a mayor, you can't necessarily affect interest rates. And you can't affect necessarily a lot of the causes of inflation. But what you can do is make sure that you don't make the problem worse by having unaffordable kinds of tax increases for people. What you can do is to make sure that you increase at the fastest possible pace, recognizing we have quality you know, control issues we want to pay attention to, the supply of housing. What you can do is make sure you get the transit built so that people can get to and from work or school in an easier fashion to try and produce economic and environmental benefits. And what you can do is to work well with the other governments because they are indispensable to building a great city here. You know, Toronto should have more latitude than it has to do things on its own. It's a big city with a big budget, $15 billion. You all elect a response, I, li I like to hope, a responsible government to, uh, to run it. But at the same time, we are still very much, um, you know, under the purview of the province in particular. Uh, and that's fine. I, you have to make that work. Um, and, and it's so important that we maintain these partnerships that have been to the benefit of this city on transit, on housing, during the pandemic. And I think that the people who are there, Mr. Trudeau is going to be there, it seems, for another three years. Mr. Ford is definitely going to be there for another four years. He just had an election. And I think that the three of us have worked well together and we will continue to do so. And I'm pledged to do that if I'm reelected. That doesn't mean you don't disagree with them. And I've had times I've had to stand up for Toronto's interests. But most days I see my job is to settle any of those disputes in private and to just come forward and sort of say we're working together to get things done for the people of the city. But infrastructure and, and uh, transit, one of the things that, that seems obvious to me and a lot of people is that there is this disconnect with the, the, the neighboring municipalities. Are we working, or I know it's a political thing and you're going to have to manage this, but there has to be connectivity with those folks and sometimes they stop right at the Toronto border. Are we going to do anything to say, look, other than GoTrain, um, uh, the GO train comes across, but nothing else actually does. So can we get that connectivity with Mississauga, York? You and, know, John, I'll Durham. be very honest in saying that it's challenging because every municipality has its own sense of independence, and, and I fully understand that. If somebody started to tell me I had to do something based on what some other place said, I might resist that a bit. But I have tried to take the initiative uh, and successfully did during the pandemic, and it was really uh, a great benefit, I think, to the region. Um, I chaired meetings every Monday at 12 o'clock noon of the 11 mayors and chairs of the region around Toronto, the greater Toronto and Hamilton area. 
And I can tell you that we shared things as you would expect us to do. When we had ideas that were good at helping people through the pandemic, we shared them with each other. And then, you know, we didn't try and covet a good idea and say, well, it's just for Toronto or just for Mississauga. We shared those ideas with each other. And lo and behold, after months and months, years of those meetings, we started to discuss other things. Like, why is it still the case after all these years that when you're on a bus, uh, that the bus, you know, you, you, all you care about is that the bus takes you from Mississauga to wherever it is you want to go in Toronto or back the other way. You don't care about who pays what fare to who or what the sign says on the side of the bus. And we're moving in the direction of now having more cooperative things, but at least we're discussing those at these very same meetings. I think it's essential because you know what? Most of the problems that exist in the GTHA are regional problems. Housing uh, shortage is a regional problem, not just a Toronto problem. Um, all of the different things we've talked about, transit, entirely regional, as you say. And so uh, I will just tell you that I intend to, uh, it's a little bit diminished now, those meetings, because everybody's uh, facing elections at the same time. But when the election is over, um, I would like to take the leadership role again of, of convening those meetings. If they want someone else to chair them, I've chaired them for two years, that's fine. But I think they're very important. And I think it also, to be candid, um, is effective for us to stand as a group of municipalities to speak to the province about certain things because there's 11 of us representing, I think, about 9 million people, and it's harder to uh, not get some attention if there's 11 chairs and mayors representing 9 million people than, say, one representing 3 million. Fantastic. And turning to the provincial government for a moment, Premier Doug Ford is giving the mayor of Toronto more powers through the strong mayor system. If you're sitting back in the mayor's chair, how will this change the way that you do your job and ultimately run the city? Well, I should tell you, I don't sit back in the mayor's chair very often because I sit <laughs> kind of on the edge of the chair because you never know when you have to leap to your feet to try and deal with something. But having said that, I, I will be honest with you and say, for my leadership style, and I've had this job for eight years, I don't think it's going to change very much because I believe that the way we've got decisions made is by collaboration and, and by consensus building. And there have only been one or two occasions when I withdrew something. I didn't lose too many votes, but I withdrew things because I couldn't get the consensus of council. And I think it's a better way to make decisions. Um, now, I will say to you, and I will say to you secondly, that the, the, the way the powers have been written up, there's less to them than meets the eye. Essentially, it allows two things to happen, and I'll mention on the first one that it will help me to implement the new division uh, that I've talked about for planning and growth to speed up housing approvals. The fact that I now would have the power under this new legislation to um, put people in place and to do engage in a degree of restructuring of the public service, which I never had before, will allow me, if we can't reach agreement, to move forward and make some of those changes because I believe I will have a mandate to do so if I win the election. And so I would have a power, whereas before, if, they, if I got stymied on that in some way or other, I wouldn't have had anything I could do about that. And the second is with respect to the budget, where I will now have the responsibility to present a budget, and it would take two-thirds of the council to vote that budget down. But I will describe the way in which I think these powers will end up being used, certainly by me as mayor, as being kind of like this an analogy, which will sound like a funny one. But you know how you've all driven along in the car before? And you've turned around to your kids and said, if you kids don't stop that, I'm going to pull this car over and you're going to be really unhappy. And I think that it will work if the consensus building discussions aren't going well and the collaboration isn't happening to say, well, look, I do have these authorities that I've been given by the provincial government. I'd rather not use them because I'd rather we came together uh, to make decisions. But if necessary, when I believe, and I'll tell you a couple of things that I mentioned today that I feel very strongly about. I feel very strongly these changes have to be made to speed up the supply of housing being increased and all kinds of housing and different options for housing. That must happen. 
We cannot be a city any longer where you have a choice between a 50-story condominium and a two-story house. We cannot be a city where there's a whole bunch of people that seem excluded, not by deliberate design, but just end up excluded because they either have the choice of buying something uh, in a high-rise building or buying a house that might be unaffordable for them. There have to be all these other things in the middle, duplexes, triplexes, mid-rise along transit. And so I would use the, the authorities given to me, if necessary, to put that through. And I would use um, the authorities, if necessary, to protect the transit plan. I feel so strongly that we've seen this movie so many times before, where we have an election, it's either federal, provincial, or municipal, and somebody in one of those elections says, I have a better idea on transit, I'm going to implement my plan. And then the plan that might have been agreed to before doesn't get built. The answer is nothing gets built because you have five more years of debate and discussion and study. We have a plan. People have agreed to it. We forged a partnership together to get that plan uh, agreed to, and now we're building it. And we are not going to stop building it. We've got to keep building it to, and, and have it go forward. So that's where I would use those authorities if I had to. But I hope I don't have to. You talked about your five-point plan, and uh, I commend you. I think we all commend you for putting something like that forward. I think it's, it's uh, aggressive and innovative, and I think it'll solve some things. And anybody who's ever tried to build anything in the city or work on a permitted project will talk about the frustration. We've heard the, the provincial government talk about red tape. Will it be a, a level playing field for all types of, of people that are trying to get something done? Because the challenge, in, in my experience, and having done this, I'm Italian, I grew up with a hammer in my hand. Um, so when we go to the, if you know the guy, you might get to the top of the list. Is, is it going to be something that everybody, if you're doing infill or laneway or garden suites, will this be something that will help these folks get it done? Yes. And, and it isn't just going to be about the approval process that will apply the same as if you're building a big project as a smaller one. But we've also said very clearly that with respect to development charges, which I know are always an issue when it comes to affordability with you and with the people building the housing and the people buying it for that matter, that we're going to uh, look at exempting from these kinds of increases that we have to bring in. And I think you all know that development charges are not derived from a number we pull out of a hat. It's derived from the actual cost of capital projects that we have to undertake uh, to account for the growth, like sewers and water mains and, you know, different things that we, and transit and roads, and there's a long list. And so uh, there are increases that are, that are contemplated uh, by a bylaw that was passed by the City Council recently. But one of the things we did there was, first of all, we phased in the increases so that it won't be a shock uh, to the system. And secondly, we indicated a clear intention as these are applied to exempt uh, the small kinds of four to six uh, unit developments because we want to encourage those. It does no good for me to change the rules and the council to change the rules and say that we're going to adopt a more permissive approach to having these if then they can't afford to build them because of the strain of total strain of, uh, of the municipal financial pressure. And so um, the answer to your question is yes, I'll be as, as focused because in the end, I believe an answer to the affordability of housing and the supply of housing is going to come from those smaller contributions made by duplexes, triplexes, mid-rise, um, and so on, as opposed to just having more. We, we don't have a lack of supply of high-rise towers and there's many being built and many that are in the pipeline. We need these other forms of housing uh, to make sure that, as I said, people can live in the neighborhood where they grew up and have a chance of doing that or live in the neighborhood where they spent their lives and have a chance of staying there with all the neighbors and the shops and people they know to have those later years of their life be uh, comfortable for them. So the answer to your question is yes. We'll be paying equal attention to everybody that's a participant in all this. Thank you.
So in looking at duplex, triplex, fourplex, and alternate types of housing, there's obviously a lot of politics and nimbyism, and exclusionary zoning certainly feeds into that. Do you see a time where exclusionary zoning, which essentially makes 70% of the city single-family homes, needs to go? Well, that's, um, you know, I, and, and when it's put that way, it sometimes sounds threatening. Mm -hmm. And I would say what we have to do is, in the 75% of the city, make sure that the options are available to build different forms of housing and that those options are available under the rules so that you don't have to go and get some big exception made. It is actually assumed that people can come forward and subject to the same kinds of quality controls that you would expect to be in place anywhere, that people will have the option in places 75% of the city where they presently cannot um, uh, uh, you know, construct or, or otherwise uh, produce that kind of housing that they will. And as I said earlier on, as I've been talking about this right around the city, because I'm conscious of wanting to get a mandate if I can win the election to implement this, when I point out to people that even in the neighborhoods where they might have pushed back the most on this over time, there are today and have been for decades duplexes and triplexes and four-story apartment buildings and so on. And even the kind of mid-rise development I've talked about, you know on some streets they have done it over time and it fits in today, you wouldn't even know it wasn't there from the very beginning. And so you have to ask two things of people. One is to be understanding of the fact this is not anything really new and that we're really just asking for these kinds of balanced neighborhoods with quality control and sensitivity remaining in place to make sure we have things that are compatible. But secondly, accepting the fact that it is not going to be good for them or for their neighborhood or for their city to have a city that excludes people. And you know, we're talking in many cases about a first-year teacher or a first-year police officer or a first-year person that's starting out in real estate. And let's say they make $50,000. If you simply do the math, they can't afford to rent or certainly to buy in this city, but that's the reality they face. They make $50,000, they want to live in the city of Toronto, and we want them to live in the city of Toronto. We do not want to become, and I don't want to lead a city that consists entirely of people who are comfortable, as many of us might be fortunate enough to be, or those who are struggling and rely on the government for their help. We want all those people in between to have a place to live in between a 50-story tower and a two-story building, and to have the feeling of being included in a city where we're going to be the healthier for having people from all different groups able to find a home here that's affordable for them and that is a quality home. And I think we can do that if we put our will to it and, and you know, just gently sort of persuade the people who are um, accused of being NIMBYs, and I guess sometimes they are, uh, of that really this just represents in some cases back to the future and, and something that can be done in a careful, high quality way that is not threatening anything. In fact, it's a huge benefit for us. We want to attract talent. We want to attract people to come to the city. Um, and now we're hearing about doctor shortages and all that. But all your plans are going to cost money, right? I mean, it's always a sensitive sub subject. So where will the money come from? Well, I'm honest enough to state the obvious, which is that it, 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 you know, it could come from a dramatic increase in property tax. Let me give you one example of what we could do but I don't think it would be responsible. The change in ridership on the TTC because of the pandemic went from 100% of normal ridership, which is 1.7 million passengers a day, down to a low of 27% during the height of the pandemic. And it's now gone back up to about 70% today. So if you assumed it stayed at 70% for the time being while people get adjusted to their work habits going forward, that produces a shortfall for us as a city, just the city, of about $300 million a year. 
if you wanted to make that up through property taxes, which you could do, just that one item alone would be 300, it would be 10 points of property tax, a 10 point increase in property taxes. And if you then add to that the fact that, for example, next year the Eglinton Crosstown uh, LRT subway will come into uh, operation, the cost of that, the additional operating cost we will bear uh, to run that subway will be $50 million. So it's, say, almost two points of property tax for that. So you start to add this up, and I could easily just say, well, you know, the math is the math, and uh, sorry about that, we're sending you along a notice, and there's going to be a 16% property tax increase. That's the only latitude that we have or a big increase in land transfer tax. And I'm sure if I took a vote, that would be extremely popular in this room. And it doesn't make sense anyway. I'm not doing that. I'm committed to not doing that. I'm committed. No, I'm committed not to doing the land transfer tax and not to doing the property tax increase of that magnitude. So where does that leave you? Well, it leaves you in a position where you have to have the partnerships with the other governments. So if we want to build transit, we want to do the things we're doing on housing, we have put up our fair share in both cases. When I said the plan didn't, just agree on what transit will be built, but how it will be paid for. We are putting up our fair share in every case, um, and, and we're doing that with the money we have. But we need those other governments to be at the table. And so that is why the maintenance of these partnerships is crucially important, because you're right. If we want to do more on housing or more on transit or more on anything, uh, we can't do it alone. You know, whether that's right or wrong, that the city should be set up in such a way that it has a dependence of sorts on these partnerships, that's for another day. But I will tell you, based on the rules as they are, I'm not going to be the mayor that is going to impose a 10% property tax increase on people when they're struggling because they can't afford to pay it. And I'm also, uh, I don't have the latitude to run a budget that isn't balanced, and I, I don't believe in doing that anyway. The law, I think, works for us to have a balanced budget. Um, and uh, so uh, we're left in a, and I'm not going to cut services. I mean, I think we have to sometimes be more efficient about how we deliver services, but you know, the services we, we provide to people are services they need. The water has to turn on, the police have to come, the fire department has to come, the roads have to be kept, the transit system has to operate. We don't have the option of just saying, well, let's just forget about that this week because we can't afford it. So I will just tell you that leaves these partnerships as very key to our future uh, uh, success in tackling these problems. So in terms of commentary around massive increased property taxes, development charges, obviously incredibly supportive. One of the concerns when you look at housing affordability, especially in a city like Toronto, a CMHC study, BUILD also has done a study, and approximately 24% of the purchase price of a new home, or about $350,000, in the case of a condo, $180,000, is government taxes and fees. Now those obviously are not all municipal, many of them are federal and their provincial fees associated as well. What options exist in terms of working with the other levels of government to potentially provide contribution, benefit? Because it, it seems as though in the last year, federally, all of a sudden housing is a big issue. It wasn't for many, many years. Provincially, it was the biggest topic during the election. And obviously, municipally, we've known there's been huge shortages in Toronto for some time. I think, you know, I hate to keep answering the same question with this, the same, you know, relative area with the same answer, but I think the other governments have, have access to income taxes, corporate taxes, sales taxes, all of which grow with the economy. Property taxes, as you know, do not. Um, whatever's going on with the economy, property taxes stay constant, and that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on what is going on with the economy. But that's the reality that we face. And so if you want the other governments to make a greater contribution to infrastructure, which takes some of the pressure off development charges, because that's the only other source of income we have, then if they make a greater contribution, as I should point out, they have. 
So when we did the transit deal, the government stepped up and made significant commitments financially, which takes some of the pressure off us and off DCs, because if it's paid for by contributions from the other governments as well as our own, less has to come from development charges. And I would only say this to you. Uh, we tried hard to sit with the development industry and make sure that the increases to the development charges did not dampen the very active uh, job-producing, housing-producing um, construction market that we had in the City of Toronto. But also, I am not in a position, and I won't be irresponsible and say, well, let's just you know, not have any development charges or take them down by 50% and not build the transit, not build the roads, you know, not maintain. It's not an option. And you know, in previous generations of leadership, and I'm not talking about anybody in particular, we often thought we could just postpone things. And the result of that is very little transit, less than we should have. The result is the water mains we're now replacing, which I'm sure aggravates you as you drive around and there's construction. We have 140-year-old water mains serving a, not just a city that's grown, of course, since 140 years ago, but where we're adding buildings and things every day to that. And I won't sit by. I'm not the kind of leader who can be comfortable in the notion we're just going to leave the 140-year-old water mains there and hope for the best. And so we're building all these things and it costs money. And, and the principle that applies is growth paying for growth, so that as you add new buildings, you are charging what is required to build the infrastructure to support those new buildings. But the more help we get from the other governments who have access to the growing um, uh, you know, pools of money through income tax, sales tax, and corporate taxes, the less pressure it'll place on us to come up with that money. So I'm not trying to slough it all off on them. Quite frankly, I think the City of Toronto should have other tools available to it to finance itself, but that's not the reality, and so you, you deal with the rules that, uh, that are in front of you, and that's what we're doing. Going a little further on that line, what are some other tools that potentially government should look at providing to a city like Toronto? Well, I think without getting into specifics, I think that over time, I mean, I'll give you an example of something that I did put forward in my first term in office, and I did it with the encouragement of the then provincial government, and they said, yes, if you go ahead and do this, we will approve of it, and we will let you do it, and that was road tolls on the Gardner and the Parkway. And there were a number of merits to that, including, for example, the fact that many of the people who drive on those roads, which the city owns and maintains, don't pay taxes in the city of Toronto, so they're getting a free ride. And so the road tolls not only would have done that, but would have helped us, though, with uh, congestion management and helped us with environmental uh, benefits we're trying to produce. And so we went to the trouble of getting that approved by the city council, which was no mean feat to have a significant public policy change like that. And then when I went back to the provincial government, uh, Premier Wynne said she changed her mind, and that's fine. I, I, got, I, I got along well with her, and I, I have highest respect for her. But she changed her mind and said, now that we've done all the work of getting it passed, think about that being passed by the city council, what a huge step that was to get that group of people where there is no majority government, no party. And I went around and convinced the members of the council, the majority, to approve that. And then she said no. And if that was in place, we would have had it fully implemented by now because it was due to be implemented and it would be producing, I think, $200 million. And that's, that by itself is what? Eight, uh, seven or eight points of property tax. And we'd have that money available to do some of these things. And so I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that what would be in the best interest of um, the people who live in big cities like Toronto, and Toronto's the biggest city in the country, the economic engine of the country, 20% of the GDP of all of Canada comes out of this city, and I don't say that bragging or trying to irritate fellow mayors, I just say it because it's real, and I want to be contributing to Canada to being strong by having this city be strong, and I think we'd be well served to sit down and not reopen the Constitution, but stop what happens now, which is when the federal government, for example, says that they want to contribute to some areas that are provincial jurisdiction, but do 
it directly to cities for transit we have or for housing we have or things like that, there arises this great clamor as if the world's going to come to an end because maybe they pass some money from their level of government to us when we need it. And I'd say, look, frankly, this city is bigger than many of the provinces in this country. It is. It's bigger in its budget, bigger in its population than most of the provinces of Canada. And to me, therefore, the notion that we might have a partnership with the government of Canada who wants to help us with special challenges we face. I've often said, I will line up and be on equal terms with all of the other cities in Canada that have transit uh, systems that move 1.7 million passengers per day. The fact is, there aren't any. We're in a group by ourselves, I'm proud of that, but it's also the reality that we're in a group by ourselves and deserve to have some form of special treatment that takes account not only of our size and our scope, but of the contribution we make, and happily so, to the well-being of this entire country. And so I'd like to have that discussion, but it is occasionally elusive, shall we say, because nobody really wants to get into that because everybody's got their own deal. So, so this will be the last... Yes. comment and, and question uh, before we, we take questions. Um, I heard three things. Um, I was going to ask you about exactly what you talked about, which, which is traffic management and congestion, and the tolls would have certainly, and we'll talk about that in a sec, but I heard you say it's interesting the challenge you have at the municipal level. You only have a few tools to fund, the, the, the get into the budget, to have a budget. Then someone said to me over the weekend, he, he said, do you have a loony? I said, yeah. He goes, every time you pass this loony on, the government earns 13% interest. And I went, wow, I've never had that perspective before. And, and it's interesting. You don't have that tool at your disposal, not even a remnant of that. Um, the other aspect I heard was Vaughn's got a big job lobbying the, uh, the other levels of government, and so does Wasim, I think. <laughs> but I think that's really important that we have to do our part in getting the other levels of government to, to understand what really happens here in the city of Toronto. But I, one of the things that has become very glaring is gridlock in the city and congestion. What are the plans? And, and, and I'm not going to touch some of the sensitive things like, you know, Okay, I won't even go there. But I mean, there, but there I know are what some you're about sacred. To say. There are some sacred Did it begin cows. With a B? Yeah. yeah. So there's some sacred cows there, and and we know that they add to the problem. Um, what do you have a plan? Is there a plan for congestion in the city? Because now it's becoming very serious. Yeah. I mean, the biggest single contributor to congestion, I think you'd agree, right now, is construction. And I can't back away from that because that would involve stopping building the transit. Uh, and I, I'm just warning you, there are going to be consequences of building the new transit plan that are going to be not necessarily to the liking of people who drive around. The intersection of Queen and Young, for example, is going to be closed for two or three years uh, because they're building one subway below another and it becomes very complicated for them to do that and maintain the traffic at the same time. And so we're going to have to make adjustments to make those kinds of things work as best we can. The civil construction I talked about, the public works, the water mains, the sewers, cannot stop doing that. We did that before. And the result was 140-year-old water mains that burst in the wintertime. So we've got to carry on with that construction. And then the final construction that's taking place that contributes as much as both of those is residential construction. And the way Toronto's put together, it isn't possible for us to have the kind of rules. People say to me all the time, well, why don't you have these rules that, like they have in New York where they say your trailers and your trucks all have to be on the, the lot where the building's being built. Well, if you look at the kind of buildings that are being built downtown and uptown, um, the, 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 it does, it's not, you can't do that. You can't put the trucks and the trailers on the lot because things are too close together. So we have to get through the construction. We've created three, and now I think heading towards five, construction hubs in the city where we have people that actually coordinate the comings and goings of cement trucks and dump trucks, and that's partly about safety, but it's also about congestion. Um, 
I want to see us dramatically increase the number of traffic agents that we have who actually are people. And again, here's an example of something you'd say, does this make any sense to you? There are two things I wanted to do that would help with safety and with, to, with congestion, principally safety. One was speed cameras, you know, photo radar, they used to call it now, people seem to be afraid to call it that, I'm not, because I think it just makes sense uh, to use it to help people, you know, help people obey the law. When I wanted to put speed cameras back in in Toronto, I had to go and ask the provincial government. It took them three years to say yes. I should have just been able to do that as the mayor of Toronto with the council's approval. The second one was traffic agents. We wanted to create somebody who wasn't a fully sworn police officer because they have other things to do, but who had the authority to direct traffic. And when we wanted to go and create this new category of people, um, it took three years to get that done. I should have the authority just to do those things with the council. And so there are things like that that we're going to do. We're going to use technology. We've got um, increasing numbers of, of uh, smart signals using technology now so that the lights actually change with the flow of traffic. They, they pick up how the traffic's moving. It's similar to the kind of technology used to help you with GPS navigation. Um, and it just measures the flow of the traffic and changes the lights automatically. But the number one thing we're going to do to address traffic congestion, and it's going to take time, is build transit and do the development we talked about along the transit. Because think about it for a minute. What is the likelihood you're going to drive somewhere in the city if you can walk out your door, walk 50 steps or even 500 steps, and get on the subway? The chances are much less you're going to take your car. And, and what goes with that, as you know, I, I'm sure, is that we've changed the parking requirements now because it's no longer hopefully going to be as necessary with all the transit we're building and so on to have as many parking spaces, which is a very expensive part mm -hmm. of building multi-unit housing. And we've relaxed those requirements now so that we're not causing developers to have to build parking spaces that aren't needed and frankly in many cases aren't wanted because we don't want people to rely on a car we'd like them to use public transit and even their feet and bicycles to get around. And so these are the kinds of things that we're going to have to do. But if you think about it for a minute, and I'm not saying it has to be a state of affairs that lasts forever or that we're accepting the present state of affairs. I don't accept it. We can do better. But if you think of busy, successful cities you've been to in the world, most of them have a degree of traffic congestion because they're busy, successful places. And so we can find better ways to move the traffic, um, but I think that the notion that we're going to sort of have, you know, wide open streets where people can just, you know, get wherever they want in a big hurry is no more likely here than it is in other big successful cities. I want to try and manage it better and do better, but um, you have to balance that against all the other things, including construction, um, that you have to get done uh, in a busy, successful city. Housing affordability is one of the most significant issues facing the Greater Toronto Area, and it's important that it is given the attention it deserves on Election Day and beyond. To learn more about housing affordability and supply challenges impacting GTA residents, visit givemeoptions.ca. Thank you all for listening in, and we'll see you next time. That's it for us. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media and visit our website, treb.ca. That's T-R-R-E-B to find market insights and more. This has been another episode of Ready to Real Estate. Thanks for tuning in.